This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Hey everybody, this is Brain Matters. I'm Matt Davis. And I'm Anthony Lacanina. Here we are with another episode uh, on a slightly irregular schedule. We like to keep you on a unpredictable schedule. Because unpredictable rewards are the most rewarding. Yes, that's right. And this is a very rewarding experience to listen to this episode. So We got a good episode for you today. We do have a good episode. Um, we always have good episodes, so we don't necessarily need to preface it. That is assumed. Uh, that is assumed. In fact, I will go as far to say this is going to be a great episode because I talked to Dr. Richard Chen, who is the chair of the Department of Neuroscience and Physiology and the director of the Neuroscience Institute at New York University. And Dr. Chen, is uh, he's had a really, really impactful career. Um, he's studied a pretty diverse array of topics, a lot of molecular and cellular neuroscience topics, things like channels and transporters, synaptic properties, and all sorts of, all sorts of cool things going on at the interfaces of neurons. Well, he's, he's had quite a career. Do you guys go in depth in any of the science in this episode? Uh, we couldn't get too deep uh, because there is a lot of things to choose from. And he's just a really interesting guy anyway. So I just wanted to hear about his background and, uh, and sort of uh, some highlights from throughout the career, including uh, a fun story about how Calcium Channels uh, got the backstory behind some of their their naming so uh, watch out for that it's the the humorous portion of the interview oh great uh well let's uh let's just get into it let's go uh i mean we haven't done this for a while but i've uh, oh my god i've forgotten we've almost forgotten important thing. uh before we hit the episode uh we would like everybody listening to perk their cochlea oh that feels so good um all right now that we've got that release let's go to the episode all right guys let's do it to start sort of early on you made a reference to the uh the environment that you grew up uh, in your childhood in new york can you talk about your experiences um in the particular neighborhood you were in and did that sort of inform your choices in in to pursue science um for example was did you have academic parents were they encouraging of that so we, we lived in a working class neighborhood uh, in bayside queens uh, uh, on a street where there were individual houses. So we had our own uh, small brick house, uh, but it was about 10 feet away from our neighbor's yard uh, with a driveway in between that I well remember. And so being packed in together with so many other houses meant that we uh, knew a lot of people in the neighborhood 
uh, fairly closely. And uh, I remember our next door neighbors were Italian uh, and I'd never smelled so much um, tomato sauce with cheese. Uh, I didn't know what a pizza was. Really? <laughs> and I'd never had um, a latke, which is a Jewish name for a potato pancake, until someone uh, kindly invited me to their house. And boy, those latkes were good. Uh, we got called all sorts of interesting names, uh, but so did everybody else. And I knew that ethnic um, kind of insults uh, for Italians, Jews, Irish, although the Irish, um, you know, were a little bit higher in the totem pole. And so in this neighborhood, uh, one could revisit all of the history of immigration in this country and, and see how you had to sort of work your way up the totem pole. So it made me much more aware of culture and uh, interested in uh, knowing what was going on. So baseball was a common denominator. And if you knew who was doing what in baseball, uh, it was harder for people to look down on you, you know, because you, you knew who Willie Mays and Mickey Mantle and Duke Snyder was. Uh, and so uh, it was wonderful, actually, growing up. Science-wise, my parents did not try particularly hard to turn us into uh, the sort of science-oriented people we were. Uh, we just naturally were inclined to it. And during elementary school, uh, the Russians launched Sputnik. Mm -hmm. And Americans uh, felt that they were being outclassed by their adversaries. Mm -hmm. uh, not exactly enemies the way the Nazis were enemies of America or the Japanese were uh, after they'd bombed Pearl Harbor. But the, the Russians were clearly the other guys. Yeah. And we wanted to be better than the other guys. So at that point, I vowed that I was going to go into uh, something like science or engineering and we were encouraged by our elementary school or, or junior high school uh, teachers to do so. So it was a sort of patriotic uh, notion? It was patriotic. Yeah. Uh, and maybe the love of the challenge. Yeah. Uh, and it didn't really occur to me then that if I went into science and engineering, I might wind up in competition with my famous uncle, the rocket scientist, Chantrison, who is a first cousin of my dad. It, it, we didn't think of China as the enemy then, uh, we, uh, although many Americans did. We thought of the Russians, the Soviet Union, those bad people who launched Sputnik and who were uh, crowing that they uh, had the best country in the world. Uh, as immigrants, we were probably a little over the top with patriotism. Um, I'm sort of interested in the work um, that you brought up your uncle. Could you speak about what his contributions were? And was that uh, a source of inspiration for you, um, somebody highly involved in an uh, intellectual pursuit like that? My uncle uh, was at Caltech and was involved in the early days of the Jet Propulsion Lab. Uh, he studied thermodynamics with a famous uh, professor there named Theodore von Karman, and he was von Karman's possibly best student. Uh, he worked on uh, missile guidance systems. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had the unfortunate feature of being uh, singled out by the authorities uh, under suspicion of being a communist. Mm. Uh, he probably yeah. went to a few concerts that were held by left-wing people, as there often are in academia. Uh, he claimed uh, throughout his life that he wasn't a communist then. Uh, he may have known a few, but then so did many other people. And in those McCarthy days, 
just knowing a few people uh, could get you into a lot of trouble, yeah. particularly if you were Chinese and uh, working on something that was of security interest. So one time his mother was ill and he wanted to send his textbooks back to China so we could keep on studying. All of these textbooks were not classified. Uh, they were just textbooks. Um, but that ra raised the suspicions of the authorities, and they wound up putting him under house arrest in Pasadena, California, for I think at least two years. Mm -hmm. uh, all of this is documented in a book called Thread of the Silkworm uh, by Iris Chang, uh, a very famous writer about uh, Chinese life who also wrote The Rape of Nanking. And um, so I think I'm going to go back to it and uh, actually try to refresh myself on all these facts, which yeah. can be found in the public record. Mm -hmm. Anyway, my relationship to my uh, famous uncle was complicated because his fame and notoriety made it much more difficult for our family to get citizenship. Uh, my dad, being quite a competitive guy, um, probably felt that uh, being eclipsed by his more famous cousin was a tough thing to take. Uh, it made it harder for him to find, uh, get security clearance. And it was a shadow that I think um, always, uh, he, he always felt. So um, I've tried in my life to take a much more relaxed attitude about having famous relatives mm -hmm. uh, like the head of the Chinese science program or a Nobel Prize winning brother. Uh, my attitude is um, probably the uh, outcome of having uh, grown up in the hippie times of the 60s, uh, that it was really important to um, have a sense of your own self-worth uh, independent of uh, famous relatives you might have had and neither uh, ride on their coattails or uh, feel in some way diminished by them. Um, in my brother's case, I was fortunate enough to have a very good relationship with him. I mentored him uh, and, you know, distinctly remember uh, playing touch football in our backyard and uh, always choosing to have my brother Roger on my team because he was the least athletic, the most asthmatic. And uh, I took a pride in mm -hmm. uh, protecting him and making sure he felt part of the group. Yeah. So, unfortunately... That left our middle brother, Louis, uh, to be on the other side with whatever neighborhood kids we could, um, you know, kind of marshal to form a two, two times two, uh, touch football game. Mm -hmm. Uh, my brother Louis is pretty athletic, more athletic than Roger and I were. So I think it was an even trade. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, we got along really well as kids. And, uh, you know, we did not spend all of our time with slide rolls or, you know, uh, watching episodes episodes of the Big Bang Theory, yeah. uh, which wasn't around then. Sure. Uh, we were ordinary <laughs> kids, and, and we played out in the street, and we played ball, and uh, we would play stickball and uh, hit, the, <laughs> hit the, this little round rubber yeah. red ball, you know, a country mile down the street, yeah. all in the street, watching for cars and, uh, you know, kind of um, worrying that we were going to break some neighborhood's window. And we did once. Uh, so... Um, but um, so this was all part of growing up. Mm -hmm. Was there some nostalgia for the way that kids played back then uh, versus how you see uh, children interacting right now? Well, I did talk with yeah. Michael Mock this morning about uh, uh, how he grew up and he and his brother 
would make up games. Uh, and part of the fun of being a kid was being able to yeah. make your own roles and, you know, kind of uh, hold everybody else to the roles you had made up. Yeah. So yeah. he described taking a deflated soccer ball and making a great game out of it. It took him <laughs> only a short time to decide on the rules and then the rest of the time to play the game. Yeah. So uh, life was a lot less supervised. You have a lot and very limited resources to uh, entertain yourself. So you make the most out of what you have. Right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that was fun. And to some extent of uh, being in science, and being in, let's say, a department chair uh, consists of getting other people to decide they want to be on your team, mm-hmm. yep. uh, that uh, you're all part of the same team. And maybe some people uh, have a slightly larger hand in the strategy than others. But, um, you know, you have to give everybody a chance to participate. Uh, and if they don't feel empowered, uh, they're not going to be happy and the team's not going to be as good. So yeah. you, you learn uh, uh, different skills uh, by being a kid involved in street athletics than you do if you are, uh, let's say, going uh, to highly supervised activities. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, how did the transition from your undergrad experience at MIT in electrical engineering, um, how did that lead to you studying uh, more biology? What was the inspiration there and what path were you following? You may have done some homework uh, to hear me tell the story, uh, but I love telling the story because it gives me a chance to honor the friend who basically insisted that I would go into biology. Mm-hmm. His name was Robert McDonald. Uh, that's M-A-C, small d, Honnold. Uh, and he is now the chair of neurology at a large university, uh, Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got quite a distinguished career. And at the time, he had discovered neuroscience. We were both students in electrical engineering, and he saw the light before I did. And like converts to some kind of religion, uh, he had a born-again attitude about him, Mm, that um, his job was now to convert me to the same religion. And now I was a little resistant. I didn't uh, know what he was talking about, and I didn't... Of course, I was interested in the brain, but I didn't think I had necessarily uh, the inclination to study it. I was still more thinking that uh, I would learn about um, uh, solid-state physics, which was a form of electrical engineering, then go into politics, and then change the way uh, government and, and science interacted with each other. Mm-hmm. In other words, I thought I was going to be the science advisor uh, and he said, you should really learn about biology. It's fascinating. Learn about the brain. And he introduced me to someone that he had met named Nelson Kang, who was the head of the Eaton Peabody Lab at the Mass Eye and Ear Institute. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I did meet Nelson. And Nelson uh, uh, was pretty sure of himself, but he did give me some very good advice. Uh, he told me, Uh, you should, number one, learn about evolution. And number two, you should go see Stephen Kufler and ask him for advice. Those were the only two pieces of advice he gave me. So I've taken both of those pieces of advice, and I did go meet Kufler, and Kufler uh, proved to be kind to me then and at later stages in my career. So I thought I got very good advice from people. So when I was given the chance to go to Oxford as the recipient of a Rhodes Scholarship, Uh, I could have done anything I wanted. Uh, Having had a master's degree 
in electrical engineering, which was really about a conducting polymer, which is of interest even yet to this day. Uh, I could go to Oxford and then do a three-year study program, all paid, uh, or at least my stipend and living expenses paid. And so I then had to choose between working on excitable tissues with Dennis Noble or working on insect flight muscle with a man named John W. Pringle. I went to one of Pringle's talks, and he was very senior. I think he was a member of the Royal Society. And he started showing x-ray crystallography diagrams of the structure of insect flight muscle. Maybe this would have been exciting to someone who had the background, but I lacked any of the background. And so these plots of x-ray intensities in Fourier space, one after another, yeah. in a dark room, put me to sleep. So that's how I decided that I was not going to work on insect flight muscle, but take a chance and work with this young uh, whippersnapper, uh, Oxford Don, uh, who was really just an assistant professor at the time, who had two students. And uh, I was going to join them and be the third student. Um, and that's what I did. Yeah. Uh, and that turned out to be incredibly valuable because the other two people, uh, Richard Stein and Kier Pearson, actually had formed their own subgroup. And Noble knew relatively little about what they were doing. He was kind enough to let them do their thing. And so that left me as the only person uh, remaining in the lab that he could work with. So he showed me how to go to the slaughterhouse, how to collect hearts. I vividly remember from, what? Uh, from sheep okay, that yeah. were being uh, killed for meat. Yeah. And the slaughtermen never understood what we worked on, but they did get trained by Noble to give us the hearts while they were still fresh enough to be beating vigorously. Mm -hmm. And so we would take the hearts, plunk them into ice-cold um, ringer solution. It was called tyroid solution. Yeah. And then I would bring it back to the lab with a thermos in a backpack on my back, uh, pedaling my bicycle <laughs> up the hill yeah. from the slaughterhouse uh, all the way up to the university laboratories, doing it as quickly as I could so I could get back to the lab and dissect out the tissue. And so I did cardiac electrophysiology very seriously for many years before I became a neuroscientist. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, I'd like you to talk about work that you're well known for. Could you identify what that is and um, what, uh, what was the process? Is there some story behind um, how that came to be? Maybe that people don't know about or maybe that people know about. Either is fine. One piece of work um, that I really loved uh, is uh, the realization that currents that underlie pacemaker activity are modulated by adrenaline mm -hmm. or epinephrine, uh, not by increasing or decreasing the current, but shifting the dependence on voltage so that the current uh, was uh, switched on at a 20 millivolt different voltage than it would normally be in response to the neurotransmitter. And uh, I studied that first in Noble's lab and then in my own lab where I published a solo paper in Nature uh, where I took cyclic AMP and directly injected it into heart cells uh, and saw an electrical change. Back then it was not known that a neurotransmitter would work through a second messenger 
So it was a big deal at the time yeah. to see electrical effects of direct injection uh, of cyclic AMP. Uh, that led to uh, an interest in calcium channels. And another piece of work that I'm known for are recordings of single channels, first from heart cells and later from neurons. Mm-hmm. And we studied them. Uh, they were L-type calcium channels. And uh, we gave the channels names, which have stuck to this day. Uh, How did uh, those names come about? They came about because we wanted a mnemonic yeah. for the channels. So we came up with three letters, L, T, and N. The L-type channels had the largest single-channel conductance, and they were open the longest during a voltage pulse. They were the slowest to inactivate. The T-type channels were involved in, were very transient. They opened and then inactivated, and they were open at very negative potentials. And then we came up with the designation N for found in neurons and were neither, the emphasis on neither mm-hmm. T nor L. Now, it, it, a story uh, has been repeated over and over again that I named the channels after my children. Mm-hmm. What I did was to make three T-shirts with the letters T and an L, put them on my kids, and then lined them all up on a Maramecco bedspread that had horizontal lines. It's a beautiful green bedspread. Mm-hmm. And the lines served to measure single-channel conductance, and the kids were lined up in order of their size. T was the smallest. She had just been born a few months earlier. Uh, L was clearly the largest. And N, our boy, who was between his two sisters, was clearly neither T nor L. Now, the thing that made this stick out in everybody's mind was a flat lie, uh, but it was a humorous lie. And I claimed that the channels were like my children, Tina, Nicholas, and Laura. Tina, because she woke up the earliest, activated most negatively, and was the tiniest, remember T. Laura, who lasted the longest and was the largest, and then Nicholas, who was neither Tina nor Laura. Now, my children are not not actually named Tina, Nicholas, or Laura. They're named Lexi, Greg, and Sarah. But they had T-shirts that way, and I told the story that way. And I still run into people uh, easily uh, 30 years later, because this was published in 1985. So that's 31 years ago. And they still come up to me and say, how are your children, the ones that are named T, N, and L? And then I learned that the way to help people remember things is to either precede the finding or follow the finding with a joke. The joke creates a release of some kind of neuromodulatory substance. Maybe it's oxytocin, maybe it's adrenaline. They wake up, uh, they're happy. And everything that's in temporal proximity to that is remembered. And it is an amazing effect. <laughs> what was the joke? Oh, that was the joke, yeah. The joke was about the kids yeah, and yeah, their yeah. behavior and that Nicholas, who uh, yeah. was, you know. And I even have a picture of our son stiff-arming 
the younger one and saying, so you know, nice. uh, go back into the womb. I, yeah, I have got enough with one sister. Yeah. I don't need two. The visual really sells it, I think. Yeah. Um, where do you see neuroscience now sort of in uh, its progress within the field where, where we are with all the technology that's come out, all the, the new techniques that we can apply? And maybe that's the first question. And then secondly, where's neuroscience now in the broader context of society? What do we have to say about who we are as humans and, and how we interact with society and whatnot? Well, I'm very excited about neuroscience today because yeah. it's gotten very diverse, very technique oriented, and uh, lots of puzzles are being solved. You know, uh, what makes us aggressive? What makes us affiliative? How do we remember things? What goes wrong in disease? And these are all greatly pushed forward by new tools, um, new ways of manipulating genes, proteins, signaling systems, synapses, cells. You know, uh, it's all incredibly exciting. Uh, you know, a big elephant in the room is optogenetics that was invented by two former colleagues of mine, Carl Dyseroth and Ed Boyden, who were uh, graduate students in my lab uh, at various stages, never simultaneously. And they teamed up to take advantage of this uh, protein from algae that responds to light by generating electric current uh, and used it to activate neurons. Now, I learned today that a number of people have had this idea, and one of them is uh, Boris Zemelman, uh, who worked with um, uh, someone uh, at Yale University named uh, uh, Gero Miesenbach. Mm -hmm. uh, the two of them together came up with an early version of that, which didn't completely catch fire. One lesson from that is it's not enough just to have a good idea. You need to have the good idea at the right time and make it available and practical for many people in order for it to really catch on. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Dyseroth and Boyden did it just as my brother Roger did for GFP. You know, Roger didn't discover the protein. He didn't clone the gene. He didn't show that it could be used in a biological system. He simply made it brighter and more multicolored and made it available to the community at large. And that was enough for everybody to remember him as the person who enabled their technique, uh, rather than the jellyfish or Shimamura or Chalfie or Douglas Prasher, uh, which my, who, whom my brother generously credits. Uh, so uh, Dyseroth and Boyden basically recapitulated for optogenetics what my brother did for GFP. And it's sort of fascinating to watch these uh, episodes in science and what makes uh, a great practical discovery and what makes a great conceptual discovery. So I feel about neuroscience today uh, that it's undergone too big a rift between cellular and molecular things and circuit and systems things, that the people who are unraveling circuits seem to be content simply to find that the answer to something lies in a positive or negative connection between neuron X and neuron Y in circuit A and circuit B, or uh, region A or region B. And that to me isn't as satisfying as understanding a principle of how uh, a signal takes place rather than something that ends with an anatomical name. Maybe that's because I'm an electrical engineer at heart 
And in electrical engineering, nobody gives you prizes, engineering prizes, for whether you put the power supply uh, behind the field effect transistor or vice versa. The location of objects in the uh, silvery box is of very little consequence unless there's something really special about the silvery box. It's who's connected to whom and what transformations they're uh, able to perform. So I'm more interested in the input-output relationships, the mathematical properties, the transfer properties that make the brain work rather than the anatomical uh, entities that make them work. Call one the amygdala, call the other basal ganglia, call the other the uh, hab medial habenula. Mm -hmm. Okay, they all have uh, quaint and very colorful names. Uh, is that the most important thing? Uh, I'd like to think that it's the general principle. I'm not disparaging figuring out the circuits because yeah. unless you know the circuits or the names of the molecules, how else are you going to figure what's going on? You need proper nouns, but you also need verbs and yeah. you need a syntax and you need uh, a language. Language is just not the names of all the people you have on your board or the names of all the flowers or the names of all the birds that Audubon painted. It's their relationship to each other that's really interesting. So that's a little bit of a pet peeve, um, but clearly we are uh, at NYU hiring people who are doing just the kind of science I described, as well as people who are interested in underlying principles. Okay, society. Yeah. So this is a big chance for us. It's a little bit like those heady days of Sputnik when everybody decided that traveling to the moon putting a man in orbit and traveling to the moon uh, was incredibly important. We even use the terms moonshot as a shorthand for anything that involves a lot of money and a concerted effort. Now, are moonshots really wise? Well, they raise the public expectation. And if you raise the public expectation and fail to produce, the public is going to be disappointed. Think back to the decade of the brain. Tell me a discovery that was made possible by the funding for the decade of the brain that wouldn't have happened already anyway. I'm not sure it's easy for many people to do that. Obama's brain initiative is better than that. I think it's more targeted. But um, will we know what to do with a doubling of funding? I'm not quite sure we do. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think the doubling of funding would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's hope that we can rise to the occasion but I think we should be careful of what we wish for. Still, being able to figure out the basic mechanisms of Alzheimer's or autism or epilepsy or Parkinson's would be absolutely fabulous. And if we figured out one neuropsychiatric disease, that would open the doors to drug companies and funding other funding agencies to try to do the same for other diseases. There'd be a friendly competition between donors to see whose money was more valuable. Will it be Paul Allen or will it be Timothy and Chrissy Chen, who just gave $115 million to Caltech? Or will it be Jim Simons? You know, all these are very smart people, very driven people who have used their money in a enlightened and I would say goal directed way. Yeah. So let's see how it all works out. Yeah. Sort of in passing mentioned that you at one point had an interest in the interaction between government and politics or 
science and government. Is that still a personal interest of yours? And do you see yourself having any sort of active role in that interaction? You know, I uh, met someone at a dinner the other day, and she said I reminded her of Barack Obama. Uh, she said that to me twice, <laughs> and she said that I should uh, really uh, try to be in consideration to be head of NIH. Now, uh, I didn't take this very seriously because I regard that job as a very, very difficult job, one which might not be uh, totally satisfying. Uh, but then you could say, well, if people who have the, if you like, the political instincts you do and the organizational instincts, which grew out of those touch football games and uh, making rules about soccer balls, etc. If people like that don't want to do the job, who will do the job? And so that goes back to your questions about science education. Whose job is to be the David Attenborough uh, of our generation for neuroscience? Should someone make a profession out of that? Uh, we have Sam Wong, whose predictions in the election didn't turn out so well for him. He had to eat a bug on television. Uh, <laughs> But, you know, he's an example yeah. of a very articulate guy yeah. who knows a lot of science and loves popularizing it. Uh, I feel that um, I found a pretty good niche in creating an institute where I've hired about a dozen people. I'm trying to bring together clinical and basic departments. I get a chance to mentor um, graduate students, postdocs, junior faculty. I get the chance to... Uh, change the community atmosphere of a community. And I wrote about it in uh, a, uh, a piece for a, a journal uh, where I talked about the pride of lions approach to uh, helping uh, a community. Why shouldn't I try to do that at a larger, uh, in a larger scale? I think it's a possibility and uh, I would uh, like the challenge but right now, I'd like to do a really good job at NYU. Um, you know, we have risen uh, tremendously over the last few years to being uh, pretty much in the top 10 of medical schools. And we're risen also in terms of our graduate program. So I firmly believe in that and think that it's a job that allows me to continue doing uh, science the way I want to do it, which is um, to be quite actively engaged, maybe not pulling pipettes myself, um, but I know how to do that. And so, um, but being very active and engaged in how the science happens. Um, it remains, I, I, I keep an open mind about what uh, I might get asked to do someday and uh, look forward to teaming up with folks like yourselves who, uh, you know, obviously have a stake in public education. In fact, we have a very lively uh, chapter of SFN uh, at NYU and in New York, which has been uh, very, very active in reaching out to community. Uh, so uh, I think that would be another opportunity for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what would you say to a student undergrad considering uh, a career in neuroscience? Uh, what's, the, what's your go-to piece of advice um, for people thinking about graduate school and academics? I'd encourage them to be both romantic and practical. Romantic because understanding the brain and its maladies 
is probably one of the highest occupations of our society today. You know, in the Middle Ages, people under, tried to understand the stars. In the 40s, people tried to understand the atom. In the 50s, people tried to understand DNA and how heredity was based. Those areas eventually led to realizing that the Earth revolved around the sun, that atoms are made of subparticles, uh, and that DNA is the answer to many things about life, although not everything. My former advisor, by the way, uh, has a strong beef with the selfish gene people uh, who seem to think that genes dominate everything. Uh, he's a great believer in physiological systems of which genes are a part. And those are two very different concepts. His name is Dennis Noble, and he's written a new book. I personally feel that having a black and white argument like that, you know, uh, good guys and bad guys, is uh, not as interesting to me as coming up with experimental ways of solving uh, biological problems. Uh, I'm digressing, okay? <laughs> you want to redirect me, perhaps, I like the digression, though, but yeah. yeah okay. Um, but uh, 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 advice for students, considering. Okay. Yeah. So be both romantic and practical. Think of the brain, understanding the brain as a very, very high order thing that one might really want to study. Almost the way uh, people might think about building cathedrals if you were an aspiring architect in the Middle Ages, or even theologians trying to understand uh, the real meaning of the teachings of Christ passed down over these many centuries, or the teachings of the Talmud or the Koran or whatever. Um, you know, there's a very uh, intellectually lofty and noble aspect to that, both because we want to understand what makes us who we are, how we remember things, how we think, and what goes wrong. Um, think of it as really important for the economics of society. Figuring out how Alzheimer's work could change everything about uh, the cost curve for uh, healthcare, mm -hmm. but also be practical. Think that if you go into science and particularly neuroscience, you will learn uh, the ways to think about problems, the way to understand literature, the way to interact with your fellow scientists, the way to build a team. And so even if you emerge and decide that you're not going to do neuroscience, you'll be very well equipped to do other things. You could be a journalist. You could be a political aide. You could be involved in healthcare, And you could even uh, start your own companies. In fact, two of my former students, graduate students, just like Dyseroth and Boyden were uh, former graduate students, uh, Jason Pyle and Alex Aravinus were graduate students. They published nature papers with me. And... They learned a lot about uh, about science and how to do science. Uh, in fact, Aravinus was the guy who uh, is responsible for the picture of the rat with blue light coming out of yep. its head. Yep. He's the one who did that. Okay, And uh, so he's part of the same tradition. We talked at, at length about the importance of new techniques long before optogenetics became famous. We walked around the back streets of Bethesda, Maryland and discussed how people who did cellular neuroscience could help in systems neuroscience. And we talked all around optogenetics. Yeah. Anyway, the two of them started two companies. One was to uh, help people 
diagnose whether they were fertile or not. This is for men, an over-the-counter male fertility testing system. And the other company was an energy company which would turn algae into gasoline by uh, subverting the biochemistry of the algae and getting it to use uh, chemical reactions involved in detoxifying uh, oxygen yeah. free radicals and using it to make long chain carbon compounds that could eventually be turned into gasoline. Yeah. And they made enough fuel to fly a jetliner. So yeah. what did they learn from me? They learned how to problem solve. And as Pyle said, he learned how to write. That in the process of writing papers with me, he became a much better writer. And what do you do if you're starting a company? Actually, you write. Yeah. You write proposals, you write letters, you persuade people. And persuading people involves using the English language in much the same way that you do when you're telling a scientific story and trying yeah. to convince people that you have found something, it's correct, and most important, that it's interesting. So just to be correct isn't enough. It has to be interesting. And he learned that. So I would say to the young aspiring neuroscientist, take a chance. Work on one of the intellectually most challenging, uh, daunting, but uh, uh, lofty goals. And in the process, uh, learn how to be a better thinker, a better writer, a better team player, and take that and apply it. And you can apply it to education, you can apply it to society, you can apply it to starting a company. You could even go into Wall Street and uh, make a bundle. And you probably would be no worse than the people who uh, ran the British Empire and ran the British financial system, who showed how smart they were, not by doing astronomy, but by taking classics and showing that they could learn multiple languages, that was a great selector for intelligence. I think these days, uh, doing neuroscience is going to be the equivalent of the British civil service. I think that's a great place to end. We've, we're out of time. Um, there's, I feel like, a, a million more things I could ask you. Um, but thank you for joining us today. Okay. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Lauren. And yeah. you guys have great body language. And one of the reasons why it's so much fun to interview is uh, Lauren's over in the corner in front of her computer grinning yeah, uh, from yeah. ear to ear. And you're really good also because not only are the questions good, but you don't look at the answers all the time. You actually look away when you're composing your question as yeah. though you're really thinking about it. Yeah, And yeah. so it's very important as an interviewer to know how to bring out the best in a subject. And I think people who get on TV uh, and to be interviewers must be doing this all the time. Mm -hmm. they, yeah. They're doing something to prepare the uh, speaker for the next question and keeping them in a good mood. Yeah. And you guys yeah. did that really well. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. It's all uh, just learn on the learn as we do it type of thing. We've had no formal training in this type of yeah. stuff. So yeah, great. Uh, this was super fantastic. Yeah, I really have so much gold. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's going to be a great episode. Yeah. We'll have to do it again at some point. Yeah. Okay, sure. Because so sure. Sure. I did an interview like this for uh, JPP. It's uh, streaming on the web. Oh, yeah?
That's it for today's episode. If you want to learn more about the science or scientists that we talked to today, head over to our website, www.brainpodcast.com. And you should also follow us on Facebook or at Brain Podcast on Twitter for all of our updates. And finally, the thing that you could do to help us out the most would be to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. I'm just going to read the most recent one. Uh, we got one from Lily Anchi, uh, who says, Thank you for running the podcasts. I'm an undergraduate trying to get into this field, and your podcast brightened my pathway to the right door. Thank you, and please keep doing it. Uh, thank you so much, Lily Anchi. We really appreciate all of y'all that have taken time to rate and review us. The first song on today's episode was Seagull by the band Robbie. Uh, you should definitely go check out this band. I love them. The website you can go to is listentorobby.bandcamp.com. And the music that's playing right now is Lesson One for Electric Guitar by Glenn Branca. Uh, Glenn unfortunately passed away uh, on May 13th at the age of 69. Rest in peace to Glenn Branca. Thanks again for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time.